So we have been, uh, as we have been talking about every week, declaring 2022 a year of pursuing peace here at Meadowbrook. We often pick a theme for the year uh, that just kind of frames the kinds of things that we're going to talk about and what we're going to be working through. And so we call this a year of pursuing peace, wanting to seek to find that deep and abiding peace that is available to us in Jesus, resting in God's peace, having that peace of the Holy Spirit with us, and also learning out of the abundance of that peace how to live in peace with one another, with our, our family with our church family, uh, even with our enemies. And how are we peacemakers in this world? How are we being agents of God's peace? And so there are five questions that are, are framing the types of things that we're talking about uh, as we look at 2022. Uh, number one, what is our attitude going to be? Are we going to be uh, grumblers and complainers? Are we going to be cynics? Are we going to be bitter? Or are we going to be hopeful? Are we going to be full of faith? Are we going to be full of love as the people of God are called to be? How are we treating other people as we walk through this year? How are we treating uh, and taking care of one another as we walk through the challenges that we're facing as a world right now? How are we treating other people who we disagree with? How are we treating other people that we might even consider our enemy as we seek to love as Jesus has called us to love? How are we drawing near to the Lord? And that is what our first sermon series is focusing on. If he is the source of our peace, how are we connecting to him, the source of peace, the prince of peace? What are we contributing to the world? With our words, with our actions, with our social media posts, with everything we are doing. How are we being salt? How are we being light? How are we holy? How are we different? What is it about us as the people of God that marks us as different than anybody else who doesn't have Jesus? What does it look like when Jesus moves through our life in that way? And then finally, who are we imitating? We are imitating Jesus first and foremost. The Apostle Paul said, but follow me, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That there are people in our lives, we are not elevating them, but we are, are imitating where we see God at work in their lives. And so who do we see that looks like Jesus in various ways, and how are we following Jesus in them as we walk with them? And so as we are kicking off the year with our first series, Connection Points, we'll be here in here for a few more weeks, we are talking about that question of how are we drawing near to the Lord? If he is the Prince of Peace, if he is the source of all peace, if he is, as uh, Gideon named him, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace, then it stands to reason if we want to be pursuing peace, we need to be pursuing him that he is ultimately where we're going to find our peace. And we will find that peace as we abide in him. So we've been talking about different ways that we can do that. We've talked about scripture. We talked last week about different types of prayer. Where are we connecting with him in our lives? Where are we pursuing peace through pursuing him? So I don't know if you guys know this, but it snowed a bit this week. And uh, every post, every conversation this week, it was just like snow, snow, convoy, convoy, snow, convoy, snow, convoy, a little more snow, a little more convoy. And then in there, the Olympics started happening. Did we just forget entirely that the Olympics were going on? We're Canadian. Winter Olympics are supposed to be our thing. And I feel like we were just too busy shoveling and, and posting on social media about protests. And then all of a sudden, these athletes who've been working so hard are representing us. And it's just not getting near nearly the coverage that it would normally get because there's so much other stuff going on. And so as a sidebar, we need to talk about these things. We need to talk about what's going on in our world. We need to talk about what's going on in our country. We need to make sure we're not being consumed by things that are not the kingdom of God. 
So this convoy will pass away, this government will pass away, the leaders will pass away, political parties will pass away, COVID will pass away, nations will pass away, the king and the kingdom and his word will endure forever. And so we need to talk about the kingdoms of this world sometimes because we live in them, but we are to be consumed by the kingdom of God primarily. And if we have spent more time in the last week reading articles and posting and in debate and in discussion, if we're spending more time there than we're spending in prayer and in seeking his word, our priorities need to adjust. We're consumed with the kingdom of God first and foremost. We need to engage with the world, but we are consumed with his kingdom first and foremost. So we got buried in snow. Um, this would be like a Sudbury normal February day, but in the county it was kind of a big deal. And so I was out for a walk one morning, and I regretted it almost instantly, and headed out, and nothing, this was the first day, so it started snowing on uh, Wednesday, and then Thursday was kind of the day that everything was still covered. So I was shuffling through snow, like a foot of snow, and it was early, and it was dark, and usually I go for a walk in the morning, and it's, it's early, and it's dark, and so there's not a lot of people around, there's not a lot of cars around, and so this wasn't that different, but as I was coming home, and as I was walking through my neighborhood, I, I often have headphones on because I'm uh, listening to worship music or listening to a sermon or something, but I took it off, and I just kind of stopped. It was still snowing at that point, and it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. Just There was a blanket of white everywhere. The houses were all covered. The cars were all covered. The streets were covered. The fields were covered. Everything was covered. And I was just noticing as I, I moved through the neighborhood that it was like silent. It was silent. And not just because there was no cars around, because that's often the case. And you sort of don't realize until it's that silent that even in a normal time when I'm walking and it's early and it's dark, like your, your shoes are scuffing on the pavement and it's like bouncing off the houses and you can hear traffic on Talbot Street off in the distance. And just with the snow everywhere, it just kind of deadened all the sound. It muffled everything. And I stood there and, you know, I, I live in a house with two young kids. I pastor at a church. It's like my life is not silent that often. But it was just a moment of beautiful silence. And, and for the rest of the week, actually, when I went on my walk, I always went out with my headphones on, planning to listen to worship music or I want to get through that podcast or whatever. But I ended up just taking them off and just enjoying the silence of the walk. And in church history, there are, are other traditions, um, and primarily even ones like Catholicism or different Orthodox traditions, that have been a lot better than modern North American church at embracing silence as part of your walk with God. That there is a place to be quiet before him. And there is a place to, to not say anything. There is a place to not do anything. There is a place to just be with him, just to rest in his presence. My wife and I, on Friday night, went out for a date. We have young kids, so say congratulations. That's, that was a good thing. And so, <laughs> yes, applause worthy. And so here's what's really exciting, guys, is that our kids are getting to the age where we can leave them home alone where our lives are no longer completely dominated by who's the adult who's going to be watching over them. And so we've been leaving them in little short stints, and we decided we would try on Friday night, let's go out for an hour, we'll have dinner, we'll leave them alone for an hour. They loved it, did great, and as we're sitting there having this date together without our children, without a babysitter, we're going, our lives are changing forever and for the better. 
this is amazing. We talked about that. That was a major point of conversation that night was how much better life is about to get. And so Sarah and I, uh, Sarah works full-time. I work full-time. Date night is Friday night in our house. Usually we're at home. We eat at home. But it's kind of often catch-up time and how was your day and, and what's going on. And so we went out on our date and we just talked nonstop. We just talked catching up on how was your week and, and what happened in your job today and, and talked, did talk a bit about the convoy. We talked about what God's teaching us in the word and, and just different things that are coming up and plans for the future. And so it was just, we talked nonstop and, and that's great. And yet, in our marriage, there's also times where we don't need to talk at all, right? And so my parents live in Burlington. That's a three-hour drive. We do that drive regularly. Sometimes in a three-hour drive, I never clocked it, but maybe an hour of that time, we're not speaking. And not because we're fighting, but just because there's just a comfortable silence. And it's been said that's a mark of a, a growing and maturing relationship, is that you can just be comfortable just being together. It doesn't always have to be a nonstop dialogue. When I was younger and I was dating someone, I would sometimes feel like if there's a lull in the conversation, something's wrong, right? Like, why are we not, ugh, what, we've run out of stuff to talk about, oh no. And, and it's nice just to have those relationships where it's like, yeah, you can talk and it's wonderful, or you can just sit and it's wonderful. You can say things, you don't have to say a thing. And, and our walk with Jesus can be very much that. We need to pray, we need to dig into the word, we need to study. There are things to do, to be certain. But there also is a place to just do nothing at all. Just to be comfortable just being in his presence. To be comfortable just resting in him. And there is peace that comes when we get to that place. As we get to our text today, just a reminder, we do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. As we're going through this, if any comments, questions, thoughts come to mind, you want to keep the conversation going, just fire off an email there. We'd be happy to respond. Let's take a look at our psalm today, Psalm 131. Just a, a few short verses, one of the shortest chapters of Scripture. Psalm 131, starting in verse 1. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And that's it. Just three verses, and we will touch on all of them today. So you will probably have a subtitle under Psalm 131 in your Bible that says something like a song of ascents, a psalm of David. And so song of ascents is a term, we're not 100% sure what it means, but uh, several times a year Israel had to go to Jerusalem. They had to literally migrate to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices, to participate in the festivals. And so uh, Jerusalem, as it lies topographically in Israel, is at the the top of a sort of hilly area and literally sits on kind of some mountains, some big hills. And so some think that the Song of Ascents were that these were songs that you sang on your way to the temple. And because you are heading uphill, literally, as you head towards Jerusalem, these were songs of ascending. You were heading up to the house of the Lord, and you sang these songs along the way. I've read some others who believe that they were not about sort of the journey up the hill, but that the priests would sing these songs as they climbed up the stairs of the temple as part of the worship service. We don't really know exactly where it landed on what they were. But either way, there are these songs of ascents. You'll see that term throughout the Psalms. And they are always very worshipful. 
hopeful. There's a, 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 an excitement about it. They tend to be celebratory songs. And there are psalms of lament, and there are psalms of, of people just crying out in their despair, and there's psalms of heartbreak and, and in there. But the song of ascent, uh, there is a sense of like we are approaching the Lord, right? Whether it's we're literally heading towards the temple, whether it's the priest walking up the stairs, heading into his presence, but it's we are approaching him. And it is attributed to King David, one of the many psalms that he wrote, uh, David, the one who is, had the heart who was after God's and uh, wrote these beautiful things that teach us how to worship, that teach us how to pray. And so we're just going to be walking through this today. As we are, as we've been talking about this series, uh, we've thrown out the 48-minute challenge. And as we talk about connecting with the Lord... Uh, the challenge is give the Lord 48 minutes a day. And that's a man-made number. That's not a biblical number. Uh, you don't have to obey that like scripture. But it came from this idea that we're sleeping roughly eight hours a day. We're working roughly eight hours a day. And then for roughly eight hours a day, we have some time that we have some freedom and flexibility with. And of that free, flexible time, which we do have other obligations in there, uh, 48 minutes would be a tithe. It would be a tenth of that. So we're talking about giving the Lord a tenth of our free time. And some of you are giving much more than that. Some of you are not, and that's a good target to shoot for. If you're giving more, I'm not suggesting scale it back to 48 minutes. Keep doing what you're doing. But we need to be shooting towards something. And so how is the Lord fitting in to the time that you have some control over? Where is he fitting in as a priority in terms of seeking him, pursuing him, and understanding that if he, again, is the source of all peace, if we are wanting to walk in his peace, we need to be pursuing him. So that time can be spent in scripture, in prayer, uh, lots of different ways. Today we are talking specifically about some of that time can be spent doing nothing at all, but just resting in him. Just spending that time resting in him. It can be as simple, literally, as just sitting in a chair uh, with your eyes closed and just letting your thoughts rest on Jesus. It can be as simple as listening with some quiet worship music in the background and just, just resting in his presence. I remember as a kid, my dad at times would just put on some quiet instrumental music. He would lie out on the couch with his eyes closed and he would do what we're talking about. He was just resting in the presence of the Lord. He was not praying. He was not studying. He was just resting in God's presence. The Pentecostals used to call it soaking, just kind of soaking, just being with him not doing anything. And I didn't know as a kid, I didn't really understand what he was doing, but what an example to set uh, just in the living room that as a priority, it's going to be a priority just to be in God's presence. And, and so some people sit in a chair and just close their eyes and think about Jesus. Some people do it in different ways. Um, in our house, I, I'm often gone early in the morning. So Sarah uh, does morning devos with the kids. I do evening devos with the kids. But as Sarah does her morning devos, it usually includes an element of this where she just puts on some quiet instrumental music music. Uh, she tells the kids to close their eyes and, and just trying to teach them uh, what it is just to be in the presence of the Lord. And sometimes there is a, a thought to think about or a, a picture of Jesus to imagine or a scripture to, to reflect on or whatever. Um, but there is a place just for silence in him. And it comes from this deep and abiding place of trust. I trust you so much that I don't always have to be talking. I don't always have to be working. I don't always have to be reading. I don't always have to be doing. There's this place of trust there. And so there is uh, room for this in our walk with God. And, and if we're not careful, uh, we can turn our devotional time, our time with God, into a work where it's about what I achieve through my study, through my diligence, through my prayers, what I am doing, what I am making happen, what I am accomplishing 
And we don't ever want to fall into that trap. And so silence and solitude and and being quiet before the Lord is a great way just to kind of make sure that we're not falling into that, that that we do need to pray, we do need to study, we do need to seek the word, but we don't want it to ever become a work where we're feeling like God loves us because we do this or I am accomplishing things because I do this. And so taking time just to be with him is a great way just to break that cycle, just to make sure that we don't go too far down the road of works when it comes to these things. So first part of our text, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. Haughty is a fun word because when you say it, you sound haughty. I'm haughty. No pride, no haughtiness. Haughty as a word means when we are, it really means when we're elevating ourselves, particularly when we're looking down on others. When we are raising ourselves up so that we are looking down on others. Connected to pride, obviously, very much. Self-elevation. When we are thinking, I am better, I am purer, I am more holy, I am more righteous, I am more spiritual, I am more committed, whatever we are thinking, we are haughty in those moments. Proverbs says, the Lord detests, he hates haughty eyes. He hates it. It's one of the things that God hates. And we don't like it, right? When we see it in other people, we go, oh, who does that person think they are, right? Like, we don't like it. We don't see it in ourselves in the same way. It's harder to see it in ourselves, but it's not a quality we want to be effacing. We do not want to be proud or haughty. And part of the, the humility that we are called to in Scripture, again, comes from this place of trust, ultimately. It's the trust that says, I don't need to elevate myself. I don't need to make myself look great. I don't need to look down on anybody else. Like if the Lord wants to elevate me, he'll elevate me. My job is to humble myself and then he will exalt me. I don't need to exalt myself because then scripture says he will humble me. And so as I'm going to choose the path of humility, I'm going to choose the foot washing path. I'm going to choose the lowest place, the last place. I'm going to choose the worst spot at the banquet and trust that if he wills it, he will move me forward. He will raise me up. He will take care of me. I don't need to be my own best self promoter. Bill Johnson says everything that you achieve in life through self-promotion, you need to then maintain through self-promotion. And that is exhausting. So better to be faithful, to be a good steward, to do what you're supposed to do and trust that the Lord will raise you up, that the Lord is really good at promotion when he knows it's right. And so it comes right back to trust again. I don't need to be proud. I don't need to raise myself up. I trust that God will take care of me with everything I need. Second part of verse one, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I don't have to know everything. I don't have to understand everything. Again, it comes back to trust. I trust that you are God and I am not. There are certain things in this life that I don't know and never will. There are certain things in this life that I will not comprehend until heaven. The Apostle Paul, who saw more and knew more than any of us, nonetheless said, I know in part. In this life, I know in part. I don't understand everything. One day I will know fully when I see him face to face, but we are not there yet. We know in part. Uh, Part of our, our control freak nature is, well, I will learn the most. I will understand the most. I will, I will press in for the most. And, and again, as with so many things in scripture, it's about the balance because we are told seek understanding. We are told to seek knowledge. Those are not on their own bad things. But we have to balance it out with things like this, understanding I will never understand all of it. 
And although God has revealed himself to us in his word, there is a mystery to God as well that I won't master entirely. The Apostle Paul understood that. I know in part. I will not always understand everything. In the book of Job, Job is a story that you're familiar with if you've been around church for a while. And a man loses everything, loves God, blessed by God. Uh, and in one day loses all of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his children killed in an accident, and then his health disappears, he's sick. And what follows is, you know, chapter after chapter for like 30, 40 chapters of Job and his friends wrestling through questions that we all wrestle through. Why do bad things happen to good people? Where is God in the pain? Where is God in the suffering? When a righteous person is suffering, is it God's punishment? Like all these types of things that we wonder, and they wrestle through it. There's kind of a fierce and vibrant debate. And at the end of it, God shows up. And Job the whole time has been saying, God, where are you? Right? Well, show me what I did wrong. Like, like show me. If, if, if I could only be in court with you and, and we could have a, a, a real face-to-face -face debate about these things, show me where I went off track. And, and I, I really don't think I have. I have loved you and I have served you. And God shows up. And as often happens when God shows up in Scripture, he doesn't act the way that you would expect. He doesn't say, Job, here's what just happened. There's this conversation in heaven. Satan was there. Like he doesn't, doesn't actually answer his question even a little bit and instead responds with a, a long and beautiful poetic declaration, the essence of which is, Job, I am God and you are not. I don't have to answer anything you say. And that's not satisfying when we're trying to know all the great matters and understand all the great things, right? God shows up and says the creator does not, know, does not owe an explanation to the creation. The creator does not owe us anything. And man, that's not satisfying to our intellectual capabilities, but that is God's response is I am God and you are not. You are not going to understand everything in this life. That's just the way it is. You are not going to understand all of it. Job's response at the, at the end of it is almost the same as the psalmist. In Job 42, verse 3, he says, Lord, I am sorry. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I, I'm sorry. I, I went too far in, in my attitude here. Uh, there are things that I will not comprehend. And not that what happened to him was wonderful, but meaning wondrous, like just, just beyond our, our normal comprehension. Job finds himself in that place of humility, saying, okay, you know what? I, I'm not owed an answer on everything. You are God, and I am not. And comes back to this place of, of trust. We're not promised clarity on everything in this life. We're not promised we will comprehend everything in this life. The psalmist understands that. Job understands that. But again, it comes back to trust, because Job gets back to that place where he loves and follows God anyway, even though he doesn't understand everything that's just happened. Even though he's just been through a valley of despair beyond what any of us will probably face in this life. And he says, I will trust you anyway. I will trust you in the valley. I will trust you when things make sense. If our whole view of God is that we're only going to be all in when it makes logical sense to us, we're reading the wrong book. Right? There are things in here that challenge common sense. There are things in here that don't fit in with a worldview of, of science or whatever. Anytime you're talking about miracles and we're worshiping a guy who rose from the dead, we are moving beyond the realm of common sense into the place of faith and trust. 
And so we have these examples in Scripture of people saying, I will trust you no matter what. I will trust you when it doesn't make sense. I will understand that you are God and I am not. I don't know everything, but I trust that you do. And that's enough. It's enough to know that he is in control. It's enough to know that he has all of the understanding. It's enough to know that his will is good and his purpose is good, even if everything in life is not good. And so we understand it is not about us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Not about us mastering him. Seeking him, yes. Growing, yes. Maturing, yes. Pursuing, yes. But there are things that we won't understand in this life. And to have a Job-like attitude says that actually doesn't affect my trust level in any way whatsoever. I will trust you all the same. I will follow you all the same. I will love you all the same. Because our search for knowledge and understanding, too, can become a work if we are not careful. It can be we are growing because we are earning this. We are making this happen. And trust says it's not about that. It's about I trust you no matter what. The idea of Sabbath is the same. In Sabbath, we remind ourselves once a week that he is God and we are not. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's part of it. In the Sabbath, in the breaking of the work cycle, we remind ourselves that the world can spin without us for 24 hours and it will be fine. At the beginning of time when God is creating everything, beginning of Genesis, whoops, we left it, there we go, Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, I think probably the only real reason God does this is for our sake. Because God doesn't tire the way we tire, obviously. He doesn't sleep like we sleep. But God has done this and then commands us to do the same. We are commanded to honor honor a Sabbath. One day a week, we are to lay work aside. And so we are following God's example. But as we follow his example in Sabbath, we are saying, hey, even God took a day off and I'm not God, right? I don't have God's strength. I, I need more rest than he does. And so we are saying, God, I will follow you in this, not because, uh, you know, I, I feel like every day I need the break necessarily even, but because you rested being God. So God himself said, I'm taking a break from my work today. And so we are godlike. We are imitating God when we do that. And likewise, we are ungodly when we don't. And so part of what we are to be learning in Sabbath is if God himself can say the world will spin without my intentional efforts towards labor, uh, then the creation that I'm making should do the same thing. The creation should also be able to say the world can turn without me for 24 hours. And sometimes people say, well, if I don't do it, it won't get done. If I don't do it, it won't happen. You know who doesn't say that? God And so again, we remind ourselves that he is God and we are not. We remind ourselves that that things can go on without us. We don't have to be working all the time. We are called to work, but we need to break from that work. And so as we enter into the Sabbath, the Sabbath is holy. There's a, a day a week that is supposed to look different from all the other days of the week. 
and, and it is a time for time with God. It's a time for family. It's a time for joy. It's a time for pleasure. It's a time for rest. It's a time for feasting. Like there, there's a lot we can do with the Sabbath, but that one day is meant to be holy. It's meant to be different. And it reminds us we don't have to be doing stuff all the time. There's a place for rest. There's a place just to be quiet. There is a place to stop doing. And even as we do that, we say, I take my Sabbath in the trust that even though I'm not working today, God is in control of all these things. That my efforts are not what are going to be needed here. It's the blessing of God. It is him being God and me being not God that I need to be reminded of. Moving on to verse 2. This is my favorite one. I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. So like a baby that is no longer nursing. And, and our kids didn't have too hard a transition in that area. But, um, but for, for the baby who is getting older, there is a point where mom needs to say, we're not doing this anymore. We're not doing the nursing anymore. You're growing up. You're getting too old. It's time to move on to solid foods. And for some kids, that's a war zone, right? Because nursing is about the food, obviously, uh, first and foremost, but it's more than that. It's, it's the bonding, right? It is the, the mother-child time. It is that connection that happens. My wife would speak warmly of even those sort of 4 a.m. times of just the, the connection and the intimacy and, you know, the baby lying there kind of like drunk and sleepy on milk, and and skin to skin contact and looking into each other's eyes and watching them fall asleep and and there's there's intimacy there right it's about the food but it's not just about the food it's about the intimacy and then at some point mom has to say yeah we're not doing this anymore we're not doing it this way things need to change and for some kids it's it's a battle then because they want what they want and mom is saying no and they they want to do it in this way and, and mom is saying no. And, and again, our kids didn't do too bad with it. But um, I remember Kaylee even, there'd be times where, where I would be holding her against my chest and she'd be like biting through my shirt. And I'd be going, yeah, I got nothing for you. Can't help you. Um, but the picture that the psalmist gives us of, no, like a, a baby, a child, older than a baby, but a child at peace, a child at perfect peace a child that is no longer agitated, a child that is no longer screaming for what they want, a child that is no longer saying, what about me, but a child that is perfectly at peace at their mother's breast, no longer focused on what's in it for me, but just able to be at peace there. Sama says, like a weaned child, I have quieted myself. Did you catch that part? I have quieted myself. I have done some work to quiet Myself. Sometimes when we talk about these times of quiet where you're just kind of closing your eyes or you're, you're you know, just trying to be silent before the Lord, people say, well, my mind starts drifting, right? I start thinking about groceries. I start thinking about the work that's going to come. And, and you will. That is inevitable. You can't control your brain to that level. Your mind will start to wander. One of my professors in seminary, we asked him, well, so what do you do, right? You're trying to meditate, you're trying to be quiet, and then inevitably you're thinking about work or your kids or whatever else. And he's like, yeah, you will. It's not possible to avoid that. We said, what do you do? He says, bring your thoughts back. Just without judgment, don't beat yourself up. Your mind starts to wander. You go, oh, I'm thinking about groceries. All right, back to Jesus. He says, do you do that over and over? He says, it will get easier. It's like a muscle that you train. And scripture says we take captive every thought. And, and these are one of the ways we can apply that, is that we are getting better at disciplining our thoughts to remain where we want them to remain. 
and, and the wandering is inevitable, don't worry about it. Pull it back. Just bring the thoughts back to Jesus when it happens. I have quieted myself. I have learned to stop talking all the time. I have learned to stop doing all the time. I have quieted myself. I have found that place of peace, just being with the Lord. And that's part of what the Lord does for us. A more famous Psalm of David, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That one of the works of the shepherd is to bring us to that place of rest. Hey, come here, sheep, and rest. There's a time to eat, there's a time to move, there's a time to wander, but sometimes just just stop, just, just rest. Rest in the green pasture, again, trusting that there's a good shepherd who's watching over everything, that we don't have to have it all figured out, that we don't have to have the perfect prayer, that we don't have to have the information of Scripture mastered. We need to pursue those things, but there is a time just to rest and trust that he is God and we are not. We trust him talking about this passage, talking about Psalm 131, a famous preacher and theologian, Charles Spurgeon, said this. He, the baby, the child, is no longer angry with his mother, right? Angry, because he's not getting what he wants. He's no longer angry with his mother, but buries his head in that very bosom after which he had pined so grievously. He is weaned on his mother rather than from her. The baby's found peace in that place, found peace there. So it's not about there's a disconnection happening. It's about there's an intimacy that happens when we find that place of peace with him, that place of trust with him. And so as we look at this, how do we do this in our life? Where do we figure out the the time and place? Maybe on a walk, it's just being quiet. Maybe sitting in your car, you turn everything off. Maybe like my dad, you put on some music and lie out on a couch and and just are are quiet. Maybe it is about uh, just sitting in a chair with your eyes closed, thinking about a scripture or thinking about a thought. But as we uh, begin to think about, okay, so how do we carve this out in our lives? What do we do with this? How do we do this? Um, it's, it's going to be different for every person. But we are seeking to be that baby who's not squawking and squalling, who's not asking for things, who's not doing any of that. We talked last week, there's a place for that. But there's a place just to be that quiet, content kid. Just, just being with the Lord and nothing else. Last verse, verse 3. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Uh, just a nice wrap-up to this whole thing. And, and Israel, it's, it's that trust. Put your hope in him, both now and forevermore. Israel didn't always do that super well. Uh, at times, Israel were, was looking to other gods and other idols and putting their hope there. At times, Israel was looking to the nations of this world. Uh, we're not seeking the Lord. We're seeking Egypt. Egypt's going to be the one to bail us out of our problems. They, they were often looking to other things. And this call in the Old Testament to them was always, come back to the Lord, come back to the Lord, come back to the Lord, come back to the Lord. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And so we say, right, that is the main source of our hope in anything. In anything we are facing, it all comes back to that place of trust. Are we trusting him? Where is our hope right now? And if we're putting our hope in in worldly things, if we're putting our hope in worldly governments, if we're putting our hope in in our own efforts, if we're putting our hope in, in what we can build with our own hands, then we're not putting our hope primarily in him. And it's always the struggle of, okay, so what is that line then between our, our call to work and our call to be faithful, but not to make idols of these things? 
Because the Lord says, yeah, like what your hands find to do, do it, right? Like whoever, whoever doesn't work doesn't eat. That's in there, right? We are called to work. Adam and Eve at the beginning, even before sin entered the world, they were called to work. They were called to tend to the garden. They were called to oversee creation. And yet we're also told in Scripture, but unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, right? So it's, it's not about, well, let's just give up and let the Lord do all the work then. Like we have a, a role to play here, but it's, it's trying to find that balance. That our job is to be faithful, but it's his job to be God. And it's his job to bring the blessing. And it's his job ultimately to make it happen. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Come on up, Marissa. We're going to move into the communion portion of our service today. So as we talk about pursuing peace, we talk about pursuing him, connecting with him, communing with him. Uh, there's a song we sing called Holy Spirit, and part of the, the lyrics of that song are, uh, let us become more aware of your presence, right? The Holy Spirit is always in us. He is always moving. He is always working. Uh, that's a prayer I pray a lot. I think that's a great prayer to pray. Lord, let us become more aware of your presence. His presence is always here, but there are times we are more aware of it than others. And so to begin to learn, okay, how do I connect with him? Not just on Sunday morning, although that's wonderful. There is something. I, I've been so uh, encouraged by how many people have said, especially in the last couple of years, there have been times where we can't meet together and then you come back together. And how many have said, oh man, like how important it is to gather together. Right? We can put it aside temporarily and it doesn't kill us, but man, to be able to be together. There is something about the joining of faith and the joining of worship together that's so crucial and, and the gathering in that way. Um, so there is that. But when you're on your walk, when you're in your car, when you're sitting at home in the evening, when you're at work and when you're going about your day, like where are we beginning to become aware of God's presence. And, and sometimes that's coming from this place of I don't have to say anything, actually. I don't have to do anything. Just like the Sabbath teaches, I don't always need to be working. In our connection time with Jesus, we don't always need to be working. Sometimes there is a place just to say, Lord, make me aware of your presence. I'm just going to sit here and be with you with nothing to say. And sometimes those times feel powerful and rich and refreshing and, and filling. Sometimes they don't feel like much at all. Um, but we're carving out time for that, just to say, Lord, there's a place I want to just be still and know that you are God. So I didn't plan this out. It works out really well uh, as we are heading into communion this morning, because as we head into communion, we reflect on the fact that, that he has done that work for us. We don't earn our way into anything. So as I'm talking, go ahead and start to get your elements ready here. Uh, sometimes they can be a bit tricky, but get, get the first level ripped off, get the second level ripped off, and uh, you can keep listening while I'm talking. That it is, again, just an appropriate day to celebrate communion on this topic, this Psalm 131. The psalmist said, you know, as David had gone through a life of a lot of turmoil and a lot of, of ups and downs and a lot of struggle and a lot of pain, uh, a lot of persecution, and, and yet called the one who was after God's own heart and, and pursued the Lord endlessly and, and sought him in so many different ways. Uh, that same David says, I have also learned how to quiet myself. I have also learned to be like that baby, to just be with my father, just to be with my parent. 
without having to do anything. I've learned that place of peace and quiet in my life. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the cross, we believe that our doing accomplishes nothing. Like we, we cannot do enough to overcome our own sin. We cannot do enough to earn God's favor. We cannot do enough to get a place in heaven. Our, our works are not a part of this. We, we can't. People tried and continue to try. How can I earn my way into X, Y, and Z? And we say, no, a core element of this faith is that we say, no, we can't. And again, it comes back to trust because we have to say, all right, I'm really trusting that my works don't do it. I'm really trusting that what you have done is enough to cover everything. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 says that when the, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And isn't that a cool tie-in to the Psalm 131 today, that we, we are quieting ourselves in earning our own salvation. We are not making it happen. We are not fighting our way through. We are not earning this in any way. We are resting in him. We are resting in what he has done. We are putting all of our hope there and only there that Jesus has died and Jesus has risen and Jesus is coming again. And that's where it begins and ends. Anything else we do comes out of that. It comes out of that trust and hope. And as we seek to love one another and obey the word and all of those things, as we, we do bring our works in that way, it's not to achieve our salvation. It's out of the overflow of the salvation that he has already accomplished for us. And so we rest in him today. So close your eyes with me. Scripture says that before a person partakes of the body and the blood of the Lord. They should examine themselves. And this is a time to confess sin just between you and the Lord. It's a time to forgive someone who needs forgiving. It's a time to, to pray for something for sure. But today especially, you can do all those things. But as we take a few minutes here, I'm just going to encourage you just to spend at least part of it just resting this morning. Just let your soul be at peace. Like that baby, quiet yourself before him, acknowledging that in this moment, we don't need to say anything. We don't need to add anything. We don't need to accomplish anything. We can also just rest in him. So let's do that for a few moments. Again, if you need to confess something, of course, do it. And if you need to say something, you can do that too. But let's take some of this time just to rest in him. Let's fix our eyes on the cross and just focus on him and what he's done in these moments. kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. 
not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Lord, we rest in that today. And that that takes faith, that we are trusting that what you have done is enough, that we cannot add to it, that we cannot accomplish it on our own. We are sinners in need of saving, and you have sent us a Savior. We have been made right with God, not by what we have done, but we have been made right with God by an act of God brought about in the will of God. And we rest in that with trust today that you are enough, that you are God and we are not. You are the creator and we are the creation. You are Lord. We are servants. And we put all of our hope and all of our trust in you, Lord, in the cross, in our salvation, but in everything, that we don't need to know everything. We don't need to understand everything. We don't always have to have something to say, Lord, that we can just be like that weaned child. We can rest in you, that you are enough and you are everything that we need. So we come to this table of Eucharist this morning, the table of thanksgiving with thankful hearts because we can do that, Lord. We can rest in you and we make that choice this morning. Would you take the wafer in your hand, please? For what I received from the Lord, I also made known to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In trust and hope, let's eat together. In the same manner after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. In trust and in hope, let's drink together. And stand with me, please. As we always say, there is one way to respond to the table of the Lord, and that is with thanksgiving. And so we want to do that together before we go at home. We'll encourage you to turn up the volume, join us in singing as we get ready to wrap up our service today, giving him the worship that he deserves. Quiet. 